0: Schedules are overwhelmed, money is tight, expectations are unmet, relationships are strained. And for many of us, there's no sense any of that is going to change anytime soon. And this time of the year, those realities feel a little extra heavy. And throw in the commercialized hope, peace, joy, love of the season, Or the fact that we all get sick this time of year. Or that it's cold and gray and rainy. Um, No wonder we get down. We have hopes. But we know that things don't go as we hope. So we go about self-regulating how much we actually hope. And we might find that we live with this underlying, reverberating pessimism. That is that we... See the worst aspects of things. Or believe that the worst will happen. Or we give in to a cynical view of life. And we have a general distrust of everything. Of things and people and institutions. Easy for us, I think. To give in to pessimism. Very quietly. To become a sneaky, cynical person. We've been let down in a hard life. Or we have been hurt in a harsh one. So we push back against Andy Williams. Maybe, no, this isn't the most wonderful time of the year. Whether you are waterlogged with pessimism or feel the tinge of cynicism, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling numb or bored or distracted or disheveled or aimless. I just want to say that I'm really glad that you're here. If you felt any of those things in any measure recently or over the course of this last year, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning because we have some incredible good news to counter all of the things that would pull on our hearts toward pessimism and cynicism in this life. Something greater than all of those things. I'm not actually discounting the existence of all the many reasons we have in our lives that remind us again and again that life is hard and it's harsh. Those things are real. But we have something greater than them. More real. Truer. Better. And we see it on display. We see it on display in the love of God. And this morning, I want to just encourage our hearts. My hope is that it encourages our hearts and strengthens our faith in light of a hard world that would be very easy to be pessimistic with. That we have something greater on display in the love of God. And so we're going to look at that love of God this morning. The steadfast love of God and the saving love of God. The love of God is steadfast. I want you to hear that. It's not a word that we use often. And it's the, the only time you probably ever come across it is if you're reading your Bible or you hear it at church. It's not like you hear the word steadfast steadfast. In sort of everyday language. Steadfast just means ongoing, keeping, staying consistent and faithful. Not, not draining or, or, or departing or, or leaving or abandoning. It's, it stays the course. It's a fulfilling kind of love. It sets a promise and it fulfills it. It sees it all the way through. That's the kind of love that we're talking about when we say steadfast love. And God's love is greater than even our concept of love. The Bible tells us that God is love, and, and therefore the definition of love is bound up in God. And so it, he's, it's even greater than we could possibly conceive. And therefore, it's always faithful due to the character of the one who has it. We heard earlier Isaiah 63, verse 7. I'm going to wring this verse out as much as I can for us this morning. But the very beginning of verse 7 says this, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. It's going to recount the steadfast love of the Lord. It's going to remind and rehearse and, and renew and be refreshed by the fact that God's love is not our concept of love. It's not our idea of love. It's His. It's based on Him. It's who He is, and it is a steadfast love. Thereby, if God is love, this love then is steadfast. In a wearying world, where we have plenty of reasons to not rejoice. Here, when we look at the steadfast love of God, we in a weary world can rejoice. As we were saying earlier, we can rejoice. Repeat the refrain again and again. Oh, the wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. I want us to take a moment to think about the characteristics of this steadfast love. Our verse gives us a number of them for our consideration this morning. And then I want us to see how these characteristics are personified and brought into the flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the first characteristic of the steadfast love that we find is in the next part of uh, Isaiah 63 verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praise of the Lord, and then it says according to all that the Lord has granted us. So the first characteristic of the steadfast love is that it is something granted. It is given to The word granted means to deal fully or to do unto. And so the source of the steadfast love of God is God. He is bringing it down to us. He's dealing fully what his love means and fully to his people. And it speaks more to who God is. And it's on display in how how God deals with us. He means to give fully into and unto that which his love is directed. God doesn't go halvesies. He doesn't do many things. He doesn't do much. He gives unto all. And so when God loves, he loves fully. He deals fully with the object of. Of his love. Secondly, we find in verse seven the next aspect of the characteristic of this steadfast love is that it is great goodness. And the next part of the verse says, "And the great goodness to the house of Israel." So he's dealing fully with something that is described as great goodness. We live in a world that seems to mar all that is great and that is good. And yet, we need to, to remind ourselves and recount, like Isaiah 63 is doing, that God has something for us that is great goodness. The goodness of God's promise-fulfilling love is that it is overwhelmingly good. The idea of these words, great goodness, actually convey some sort of visceral thought process for us. They are pleasant. It is something that is delightful. They're often used to describe something savory and sweet, or an expression that is often used to say something is delicious. Wow, we may live in a heavy time of the season, of the year, of the calendar, where our, our calendars are overbooked and our finances are strained and our relationships are 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 just sort of like we have to see everyone ever, ever, you know, in our lives at some point over the course of these three days. And if you have kids, I'm so sorry. I know that season where you're to, to sort of like carpool your kids all over the place so that everybody can see them and grab their cheeks and give them hugs and all that. So it can feel a little overwhelming and exhausting, yet... While we do all those things, don't we eat really good? Some of you go all out on your baking and your cooking. We enjoy the festivities of the season. We might feel strained and our waistlines along with them because we are eating good. You know the, you know the idea of something delicious. Gathered around with people you love. Enjoying the goodness in that moment. The idea of God's love for us is like that, but even better. And that's God's thoughts on the matter. That, that his love for us and us enjoying and in, in, in experiencing that love is, is delicious for God. It's savoring sweet for God as it is for us counter the pessimism and the cynicism that lurks and lingers in your head and your heart with this truth of the kind of love God has on display for us. Next we find in our verse the idea of compassion. That he has granted them according to his compassion. Compassion is actually an interesting translation. The word here means deep brotherly or sisterly feeling and care. The NIV uses the word kindnesses. The New American Standard uses the word mercy. And they're all trying to capture the idea of this deep sibling feeling and care that God's love brings into our lives. The word conveys a deep familial bond and loyalty that moves into action to the care for the care of the family. And so the steadfast love of God. That doesn't sort of drain or wither or go away. It's all in full measure. And it's, it's coming to us in this in this way. That, that God is dealing fully with us. He's bringing great goodness into our lives. He's been moved into this deep, kind, merciful compassion and action toward us. And as we've already noted. I'll note yet again. The fourth thing that we see. In describing the steadfast love of God. In Isaiah 63 is that. He's just doing all of this. To, according to the abundance. Of his steadfast love. Abundance. Many. Much. Great. Exceeding. Again we noted earlier. God is love. And therefore he has much love for us. And that love that he has for us matches the depth of his character. So if God is love, then that love matches then the depth of who God is in his character. And and so we would say God is infinite, which means God is without limit. Therefore, his love for his people is without limit. It will never run dry. It won't ever diminish. Some of us may feel very unlovable or that we would be soaking up a lot of God's love if he were to give it to us because we've got such a vacuum in us and in our lives. And and while that might be true, I don't know. Just know that no matter how big the vacuum of lovelessness is in your own heart, it won't even drop the level of God's love. A hair. He won't diminish in any way. Pouring out his steadfast love. It's it's this overabundant babbling brook. That never runs out of life giving water. This is the kind of love. On display. This kind of love. And we are to rehearse the truth of this. Because we live in a world. And we have our own wayward hearts. That wants to. Usher us right into pessimism, believing the worst, or, or, or mold us right into a cynical view of life that's sarcastic about everything, because it's just easier that way. So, everybody else is running, so I'm going to run with them. We need to rehearse this truth again and again. Again, that verse begins with, I will recount. It means to remember to rehearse, to remind. And the point is that as we rehearse God's steadfast love and what kind of love it is, as we rehearse that to our hearts, not only does it fill us with wonder and worship, but it also helps our hearts not drift into pessimism of this world to give way to a cynical view of life. And we may struggle with giving in to the lurking pessimism in our own hearts, who we may struggle with a cynical view of our lives in this world, we just stop rehearsing, recounting, reminding the kind of love that God has put on display, our hearts will harden. It will harden. It will harden. And so we need to see the steadfast love of the God. And that steadfast love of God, it it reaches the greatest display in the sending of the Son, the birth of our Savior, in His life, death, and resurrection. We find here the steadfast love of God is a saving love. It is a saving love. The abundance of God's steadfast love moves to save His people. Verse 8 of Isaiah 63 says, Surely these, they are my people, children who do not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. This tells us a number of things. Our need requires saving. The first thing that this tells us is that our need requires saving. Our need requires saving because of this thing called sin. Sin is going against God in any way, in thought, in attitude, in motive, in word, in deed. It is a form of rejection of God and rebellion against Him. It's saying, God, you're not really God. You're not really there. I'm going to live as if you don't exist. Sin is rejecting God. And that sin separates us from God and gives us a penalty we cannot afford. It gives us a verdict that we cannot overturn. It gives us a sentence that we can't lessen with good behavior. Our need requires saving. And that saving has to come outside of us because we're bankrupt morally and spiritually. We have no ability to overcome these obstacles, this penalty and this verdict and this sentence. We can't undo them. We can't argue our way out of them. We need simply saved from them. And then ultimately, sin brings death, an enemy that we cannot beat. Every one of us will face and lose. Our need requires saving. And because God has granted to deal fully with His people, because He has an overabundance of great goodness, To pour out onto his people. He is moved in compassion and mercy. And kindness. To save. Our need requires saving. And only God can meet that need. And he does so. Sacrificially and sufficiently. Sacrificial. God enters into our affliction. Verse 9. Beginning part of verse 9 of Isaiah 63 says. In all their affliction. He was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved him. It's anticipating the day that God would come into the world to endure what we experience in order to do what we couldn't do, to pay what we couldn't pay, to give what we couldn't gain. He would enter into our affliction. He came down into our humanity, took on our humanity in the flesh. God in the flesh, the author of life, putting himself into this life this world the giver of the law putting himself under the law to live the life that you and I we couldn't live we couldn't meet god's standard so god came as one of us on behalf of us to meet that standard and then he took that perfect life and he laid it down as a full and sacrificial payment for that penalty that we faced that verdict that hung over us. That sentence we could never reduce. He took it all on fully. Again, what does God grant? He, whenever God grants, he grants to the fullest. He, he doesn't go halfway. He deals fully with it. And he came all the way down into our affliction to do so. And as such... He does it sufficiently. What God does, he does sacrificially. And what God grants, it is sufficient. God brings about that redemption, that saving. Last part of verse 9 in Isaiah 63 says, In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. To redeem means to buy back or to pay for freedom from debt. So God shows up and pays our debt in full sufficiently. There's nothing left for you and I to face. We don't have a lien on our souls. He has paid it in full. The the debt is gone. The verdict and sentence have been upturned. God shows up with this sufficient love though it is freely given it is costly secured he entered into our affliction to take on what we deserve to give us what we could never earn and so sufficient that god stoops down into our lives and scoops us up he doesn't just simply pay the debt and say to us now don't don't go messing up again he scoops us up, and as the verse says, he carries us home. This promise of fulfilling love was rehearsed in Isaiah's day in some pretty hard and harsh days. It was a hope that seemed distant and far, given to a weary, worn-down, wandering people in a hard and harsh world where they experienced the, the brutality of the sins of others, and they felt the hardened of heart of the sin of their own abandoning of God. And yet, this, in that dark day, this remarkable hope came. And it was anticipating some greater display of it. As they recounted the many ways in which they saw God's steadfast love to them, it was still causing their hearts to anticipate a greater display yet to come. And that display would come in the sending of His Son, Jesus. Second person of the Trinity taking on humanity, entering into our affliction to do what we couldn't do, to give what we couldn't gain. God sent the fullness of His steadfast love in His Son, Jesus. John three sixteen and 17, familiar words? Bordering on cliche words. But considering the depth and magnitude of the steadfast love of God and how it moves to be a saving love, these words carry with them a great deep well of hope in them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. These words connect this deep well of God's steadfast love. Just think through what we've considered in Isaiah 63. What could be greater than what God would grant in the sending of His Son? What could be more overwhelmingly good than God in the flesh to save? What could be more compassionate, kind, and merciful than God entering into our affliction to rescue us from it? What could be more abundant than what God would give? What is more sacrificial and sufficient than the Son of God redeeming His people through His life, death, and resurrection? Friends, this morning we live, and it's okay to recognize it, we live in a world that wants us to be pessimistic and cynical. There's no hope. It's... It's short-term hope. We have something greater. And here, this greater thing that we have is the heart of the Christian faith. A loving God, never stopping loving his people. So you might wonder, how might I experience such love? I know my heart fills the pool to pessimism and cynicism. I know the hardness of this life and the harshness of this world. So how might I experience such incredible love that you just described? Do I have to get my life cleaned up? Do I have to be a little more presentable? A little more acceptable? And then, then I can have this and experience this? No, the answer is no. No, you don't. John three eighteen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Stop there. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. doesn't say whoever believes in him and does a little bit of extra stuff. Puts on a little bit better church clothes. Gets his life a little bit in order stops doing all these X, Y's, and Z's that have been plaguing you. No, it just simply turns and looks to Jesus and say, Jesus is enough. He's sufficient for me. I'm going to put all my trust. I'm going to put all my hope on Christ. And Jesus is speaking these words as Elizabeth pointed out when she read them earlier. And Jesus who deals things fully says, whoever believes in him and me will not be condemned. There's the upending of that sentence and that verdict and the fulfillment of that penalty is faith in Jesus Christ. The reception of such incredible love is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is putting all our trust, all our hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that He is the final and fullest and forever display of God's steadfast saving love. That God didn't grant any, can't grant anything greater than what He's already granted in Jesus, who dealt fully with all of our affliction, who has brought into our lives the overwhelming greatest good that we could ever experience, the greatest deliciousness that you will ever have is found in the saving love of Christ. And putting your trust in Him is all that you are called to do if you want to experience this love. Trusting that Jesus lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve to give us what we could never earn as the ultimate display and expression of the steadfast saving love of God. And so recount that. Recount that this morning. Recount the many ways in which God has been on putting this on display. I know that there will be many tempting moments to give in to the pessimism and cynicism that circle around you like vultures. I know that there will be moments in, in your life of letdown and of pain and of loneliness and of boredom. And I know you may want to numb yourself with all of the streaming services. You give me them all to distract me. From that which my heart aches and longs for. And I know that in some ways. It may seem easier. To guard your heart by doing so. But there is something greater. On display. And God put it on display in Jesus. And he did so. Because of his steadfast saving love. May we come to know. And see and experience the wonders of his love. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your overwhelming goodness and grace. We thank you for the overwhelming goodness and grace that moved into action to save. You entered into our affliction. You took on our penalty. You rescued us from our verdict and you've given to us life with you. And God, I pray that we would recount the greatness and glory, the grace and the goodness of your steadfast saving love as we set our thoughts and our affections on our Savior Christ. As we think on him and on his birth and on the incarnation and what we celebrate at Christmas these few days, oh God, may we recount with wonder and worship. And for those who might be far from you, O oh God, would you draw near and bring life where there isn't any? Would you rescue those who are under the penalty of their sin? And may they turn to Christ in faith, trusting that he lived the life, and died the death and rose again, defeating all the enemies that our souls face. And that all those who believe in him will not be condemned. O oh God, we pray you would do this work.